0: Just with our open hearts, let our voices sing to you and ultimately open our hearts to what you have for us today. As we're going through these troubled times as a nation and country and world, we just ask that you be with us. Help us spread your word.
1: This morning we want to pick up for the third in our series of um, messages about faith of our fathers, and I think as much as anything over these four weeks, I I want us to recognize that where we are as a society and where we are as a church today is very very different in terms of the culture and society of of generations ago and and the the founders of the during the the Reformation period and even back to the beginning of the church in the book of Acts. But the reality is that the church is founded upon a God who does not change, and the church is redeemed by the Son of God that shed His blood on our behalf. And because of those facts where we are today, the foundations do not change. And so we can look back and and see how past generations of believers Uh, taught and ministered and presented the words and the claims of God and and is still viable because the message hasn't changed and the God that the message is about certainly hasn't changed. We've taken as a jumping off point these last three weeks the the Westminster Catechism, which was nothing more than a a method of teaching new converts and young believers uh, back in the post-Reformation period in the 15 and 1600s. They knew that it was important, that there was some kind of a, a systematic way to go through and, and teach the things of God that were important, the foundational things that were non-negotiable that needed to become the foundation of their lives. And so they put together different, different types of, of, of literature, the Apostles' Creed that sometimes we sing in the form of a, of a chorus that was, was penned during this period of time. Um, The Westminster Catechism, Martin Luther had a a catechism or a method of teaching that he liked to use for children. So there were all different kinds and styles. And so what we're doing, taking as a jumping off period each week, uh, one of the questions at the beginning of that catechism, of that methodology of teaching. The first week we looked at the first question, which what is our purpose? What's the chief end of man? And we found that that was to glorify God to bring glory to our Creator, to acknowledge the One who made us. The second week, last week, we talked about how do we know what to do? How do we know how to do that? And we found that the answer to that question is is found in the Word of God and that this is the only rule, the only thing that God gives us in, in written, spoken form to tell us how we glorify God. And so this week, we're going to endeavor a task that's impossible. Um, as I've been studying for this the last couple of weeks, it just occurred to me, it's just, what do we know about God? Well, what we know about God is what He has chosen to reveal to us in His Word, but even then, that doesn't tell us about the fullness of God. And so this morning, I stand before you as a, like a math teacher that's trying to explain a math problem that I, that I myself don't fully understand. And so I know that it's only as the Spirit of God quickens our hearts that we can understand these concepts and these principles and these things about God that, that, we, can, that we can gain in our knowledge and our vision of who God is. So there's a disclaimer that I want to give at the very beginning that, that we cannot fully understand the nature and character of God because He is infinite and we are not. He is the Creator, we are the created beings. And and it is impossible for us to wrap our, our finite minds around the reality of who God is and the way He exists and the power that He possesses. We just can't do it in this human body. But I also know that when I spend time considering the character and the power and the sovereignty of God, that it stretches me and it grows me Because what it does is, as the Spirit gives me understanding, it allows me to see God in a bigger and more mighty way, and that increases my faith, because I know that He is all those things, especially in the days in which we live. This week I ran across a quote that I thought was really good. We can never fully understand God or get to the bottom of His mysteries. God is unique. He alone is the creator. He alone is not dependent on the world or anything in it. Nothing within the created world serves as a complete model or an analogy for God. So anything that we see around us is a poor picture of the realities of God. So what were the questions in the catechism? How did they perceive or how did they delve into this idea of what God is like? Questions four and six, they're written in your bulletin. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. What is the Godhead? What is the Trinity? There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power, Glory. Let's pray. Father God, as we attempt in our human understanding to delve in and describe and look at your nature and your existence, we know that we are inadequate. And so I pray, Father, that as we turn our attention to your word, what you've given us to describe you, that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts. And enlighten our minds, enlighten our hearts, enlighten our souls about the reality of who you are, how you exist, and how you work and manifest yourself in our lives and the world in which we live. And so we pray, as we talk about you, that you would tell us about you by your Spirit. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The form of God. How do we know or how do we see God's form? John chapter 4 verse 24 says very simply, God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. What does that mean? It means that God is not confined by space. All of us, we we can be in one spot or we can be in one spot, but we can't be, we're confined by space. God is not. The, theolo- the theological term for that is He's omnipresent. He has the ability to be everywhere at the same time. I can't get my mind around that because I'm confined to space. We're all confined to space. We have mass. We have volume. That's a, the scientific term for, for the, the presence of matter. God has none of those things. And so consequently, He's not able to be defined by our measurement system nor is he able to be understood by the things that we see and the things that are around us. We know that God had the ability, has the ability to take on different forms. In the context of the Old Testament, we see instances of the angel of the Lord, which we believe to be Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate form, that appeared to mankind at at different times throughout the history of of the Israelite nation. And he took that form, God taking the form of man. And certainly we know the story of the Gospels and the entire New Testament of Jesus taking on the form of a man, remaining fully God, but taking on a human body and living and dying and raising from the dead on this earth. God is spirit, and yet He has the ability to take different forms. And He's not a spirit like we think of spirits. You know, when, when, you, when you think of that term, you, you think of the, the ghost movies and the, all these different ideas of, of, of a force that is, is, is there, but you can't get your hands on it and you can't see it. And, and, and God is so far beyond those things. I, I think in reality that the picture of the wind this week is, is probably as good an illustration of a manifestation of God. We see the power. We see the significance but the wind itself we don't see. The Holy Spirit is described as that in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost, a rushing mighty wind. What about the Trinity? What about the form of God and the way that He exists in the Trinity? Genesis 1, the very beginning of the Bible, tells us that there is more than one entity or one personhood in the Godhead. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. Second verse of the Bible. We already see that there is at least two entities of the Godhead. In Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, when God created man, what did he say? Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in, in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Let us. It's not God alone. It's God manifest in three separate entities. We find that even though he's not mentioned specifically that Jesus Christ was involved in that creation process as well. Paul in the book of Colossians tells us about Jesus Christ. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and in, on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. I like that last phrase of that verse, in Him all things hold together. You know, at the very basic um, thing that that makes up everything, that makes up matter at the atomic level, you know, there's the, the atom that, exist that they believe exist and what holds that together Well, I believe that that's what that verse tells us at the very basic ingredient of what makes up the world Jesus is the one that holds all those things together so he was very much part of that creative process in Matthew chapter 3 during the baptism of Jesus we see a picture of all three entities of the Godhead of the Trinity together Matthew 3 verses 16 and 17, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water and at that moment heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Jesus in his human form, the Spirit of God descending in the form of a dove and God the Father speaking from heaven, all in the same event. The mission statement for the church in Matthew chapter 28 reminds us as well of the importance of all three entities of the Godhead. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. Three entities Three separate persons, but one God. How can we understand that? How can we get our hands around that? You know, there's been different realities that, 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 we, that men have tried to put together about how, how, what's a picture of what the Godhead's like. I've heard an illustration about it's like a triangle that has three sides and yet it makes up one triangle. That's inadequate. That's inadequate for what God is because He is all those things all at the same time. It's separate entities but the same person. What about water? Water takes on different forms. It can be in the form of a liquid or a solid or a vapor. Is, Is that like the Trinity? No, because God is all three of those things, all three of those forms at the same time. And so that falls short. What about an egg? I've heard the illustration of an egg used to to help kids understand that, that that there's a shell and there's a yolk and there's a white and all together that's one egg. Same thing as with water. God is all three of those entities all at the same time. Separate and yet all the same. In my mind the closest thing in our human existence to what the Godhead is like is the reality in which we exist as a person. I am Brent Mullock. but yet I have different roles. I'm a father, I'm a son, I'm a grandfather, I'm your pastor, I'm a member of the community, and at different times and in different instances in my life I fulfill those roles, but as I fulfill my role as a father, I don't cease being Brent. As I fulfill my role as a grandfather, I don't cease being me and in my mind though woefully inadequate that's the closest thing that i can see in our human existence that tells me what the godhead is like and yet in reality we find in the new testament and beyond that that god uses and moves in all three of those forms to empower his people to purchase our redemption through the shed blood of his son jesus and the god the father orchestrating all those things for his glory and for our good the Trinity God being a spirit what about the age of God here again we can't understand we can't define it by human terms in Psalm 90 verse 2 the psalmist writes before the mountains were born and or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting you are God from everlasting to everlasting you are God Everything about our existence and everything that we experience is based on time. Not only are we confined but to space, but we are confined to time. Everything around us is regulated by, by seconds and minutes and hours and days and weeks and years and decades and centuries and millennium. It's all about time. That's our reference point. That's the thing that, that we understand that, that we're confined to. God is not confined by time. And and, and because we have no point of reference, we can't understand that fully. When it says in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God, that signifies that God always was. He didn't have a beginning point. He didn't come into existence at some point in time. He has been there as far back as you go into history. God's always been there. And, as you project out into times in the times to come into eternity into the eternal kingdom that God is working towards and and, and, and has purpose to to come about he 's going to be God beyond that time we can 't understand that we can 't understand that, but the reality is that helps us understand the way God works because god doesn 't work according to a time deadline like we think about. When you read through the pages of Scripture, God works according to purpose. Purpose. And so we get all caught up and this has to happen by, by this point in time or else the opportunity is lost and this and that and something else. Not so with God. God says, I have purposed that this will happen. And it will happen. And, and the timeline, the time element is irrelevant. Tells us in Second Peter that a thousand years are like a day, and a day is like a thousand years, in the mind of God. Exodus three, chapter or verse fourteen, when Moses appears to or God appears to Moses at the burning bush, what was his description of himself? God said to Moses, "I am who I am." This is what you're to say to the Israelites: "I am has sent me to you." Think about that phrase, I am. What does that mean? It means always present. I am as far back as you can think in in eternity past. I am today. I am tomorrow. I am into the untold measures of time out into the future. The I am God. Revelation 1, verse 8, another description in the early Parts of John's vision. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and is to come, the Almighty. So God has no age, no beginning, no end, always existed, always will exist, not confined or limited by time. What about the limits of God? Does God have any limits? Is there anything that he can't do? Can he create a rock so big he can't move it? God has no limits. God has no limits. The writer of Job says these things. Can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens above. What can you do? They are deeper than the depths below. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. I think the closest thing that we can see or, or have a concept of in, in terms of the limitlessness of God is as we look out into the night sky. And we know that as, as our telescopes and our abilities to see further and further out into the universe, what do we find? More universes and more galaxies and more stars and more heavenly beings forever. God has no limits. His understanding has no limits Psalm 139, that entire chapter talks about the intimacy of God with me and yet who God is. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. If I say surely the darkness will hide me and the night become night around me even the darkness will not be dark to you the night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. No limits. No limits. He can both follow me and precede me. I like that that phrase in there that talks about if I go to the far ends of of the sea you will guide me. If somebody guides you what does that mean? It means they're already there. He both precedes me and follows me. And in Psalm 147, 5, Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. We could spend an entire week talking about that one verse. His understanding has no limit. What does that mean? It means that when I see difficult things occur in my life or the lives of those around me and I don't understand why God would allow that to happen, the reality is God totally and fully understands that circumstance and has allowed it to occur because his understanding of what it means and the significance that it has fits according to his purpose. And he understands the whole of every circumstance and the realities and my limits and your limits. He's not limited in his understanding. Finally, let's look for a moment at the character of God, the character of God, the character qualities that he possesses. Revelation 4, verse 8, a picture of the throne room in heaven that John writes down for us. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Holy. God is described as being holy. In the vision that Isaiah had in Isaiah chapter 6, that was the thing that he cried out as he stood there in his vision in the presence of God. Holy, holy, holy. We can't even comprehend what holy means. Everything around us has some degree of impurity about it. Down to the parts per million, parts per billion, parts per trillion. There's impurity. And God is without blemish, totally sinless, perfect in what He does, perfect in every deed that He allows and makes to occur. God is unchanging, He doesn't change. That's why we can look at these things that, that were significant in the church centuries ago and they're still valid for us today because we worship a God that doesn't change. James 1.17 Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting sand. The God in eternity past before the world was created is the same God that we serve and worship today and is the same God that we will spend an eternity with if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He does not change. In a world of constant change, He is the constant because He does not change. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, gives us a small laundry list of of God's character qualities. This is when Moses was up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments from God. And it says, And he and God passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And he punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. The character of God. What do we see about God's character just in that verse alone? That he's compassionate. That he's gracious. That he's patient. That he's loving. That he's faithful. That he's forgiving. That he's just. And the thing about God that we can't get our hands around, you know, we're told to be compassionate and gracious and patient, all those things. But the reality is God is perfect in the exercise of those character qualities in His existence. He can maintain a balance of being the God of total justice and the God of perfect love. We can't do that. We can't do that. God alone can do that. Not only does he possess all these qualities, but he possesses them in perfection without contradiction between the two opposing qualities. The character of God. Next week we're going to spend our entire time talking about the power of God, the sovereignty of God, what does it mean that God is sovereign. because that's, one of the ne- that's the next, actually the next question in, in the catechism. But for today, I want to conclude as we prepare ourselves for the communion table and talk about one particular quality or character quality of God. And that is His mercy. His mercy. Because the reality is that's what this table is about. is about that one quality of God. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. Jeremiah writes, Because of the Lord's great love we are not consumed. For His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The reality is that God is a holy God. He cannot exist in the presence of wickedness or evil. Or impurity. And as he made Adam and Eve and set them in the Garden of Eden, they were those creatures that could have fellowship with a holy God because they possessed that same degree of holiness without blemish, without sin. And yet, when they chose to rebel against what God had told them not to do, That relationship was broken. And suddenly, man and woman that were holy and destined to live in the presence and in relationship with God could no longer have that fellowship. Because a holy God could not fellowship with that which was unholy and sinful. And so how would God balance the realities of His character that... He's a just God. Sin has to be atoned for. Sin has to be paid for. With the reality that He created and loved His creation. Both of those qualities have to be true in order for God to be perfect. And so in the ending account of the fall, in the last verses that tell us about the curse... That we have on the earth. God stated the beginnings. Of his plan. A plan. That would allow. For the fullness. Of his wrath. And judgment. To be poured out. For the sin of mankind. And yet a plan. That in his love. Would allow his creatures. To not have to endure. What they deserve. And that plan involved the sacrifice of his only son. You know, I've heard people say that as you read through the pages of the Old Testament, they don't like the Old Testament because it's bloody. There's people die and there's people that fall under God's judgment and God's judgment falls out of the sky on Sodom and Gomorrah and, and women and children and, and innocents are killed and, and it, it's just a, a bloody picture of God's wrath. And the New Testament is so much better because we see of Jesus healing people and, and walking among men and, and, and sharing God's plan. But in reality, the same wrath of God that's in the Old Testament is in the New. It's just that it is all concentrated on one event. And that is the death of His Son. In which the fullness of the wrath of God on mankind that has to happen because He's a just God was poured out on His Son because of His perfect love for His creation. If God had chosen when Adam and Eve fell in the garden to just allow sin to take its course, He would have been totally justified in not making a plan of salvation or a way of redemption. Because of the Lord's great love, We are not consumed. We deserve that wrath and judgment. And yet, the reality of what we celebrate at this table as we come before God is that it is the love of God for us and what Jesus did on the cross that takes away that punishment and wrath and judgment for us. God is perfect in his character. He has to be just. He has to be loving. And it's in the event of Jesus' death on the cross that both of those things are reconciled. He loves us. His justice is done. And we can once again be in a right relationship with the Holy God. Because as God looks at me as a fallen creature, He now sees me in the blood and the perfection and the righteousness of Christ. And I can have fellowship with Him that wasn't possible before the coming of Jesus. The mercy of God, because of His great love, we're not consumed. So this morning we're going to celebrate the Lord's table, communion together. This is about your relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not about a a church or a denomination. If you trusted Christ as your Savior and you put your faith in Him, um, recognizing your own sin, and it's only because of Jesus' death on the cross that an acceptance of that that you could be right in God's eyes. We encourage you and we invite you to celebrate this table with us this morning. Um, as is present in our day and age, we just we ask that you come down the center aisles and then go out the the outside like we typically do. But I just encourage you to spend some time in prayer prior to coming. Just rejoice if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Rejoice in the reality of what this table signifies. Because of the Lord's great love, we're not consumed. We don't get what we deserve because of Jesus' death on the cross. Let's pray together. Father, it humbles us when we consider how great you are how you have no limits how you can be everywhere at the same time how you can be know everything and father to think that at one time we were under your wrath we were children of wrath living in rebellion against you and it's only because we have put our faith and trust in the death of your son jesus that we can be assured that that wrath is gone, that condemnation is gone, not because of my righteousness, but because of the perfection of your Son. Father, I pray that you would just speak love and mercy and truth into our hearts today. If there's someone here that hasn't trusted you as Savior, I pray that today would be that day, the day that they would turn their heart and their mind towards you and ask you to come into their heart and save them. Father, we see these moments ahead as moments of worship as we acknowledge, as we remember, as we give glory to you for being perfect in love and perfect in justice. Thank you, God, for your mercy. We pray in Jesus' name.
0: We'll sing that chorus from How Great Is Our God again. How great is our God. Sing with me how great is our God. And all will see how great, how great is our God. Sing that again. How great. Sing with me how great is our God. And all will see how great, how great is our God. I woke up in darkness. Surrounded by silence Oh where Where have I gone Back to reality Losing its grip on me Oh where Where have I gone Cause I can see Sunrise. enjoy the not so windy day so far so